22, verse 20. John writes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would find us ready when you come again. And whether that would be in our lifetime or whether that would be generations from now, whether it would be this week or whether it would be in another millennium, Lord, we we pray that your church would be found ready and that we would stay focused and committed to the mission and the call of Christ, that we would share the hope of Jesus, Lord, that we would not be swept up in all of the, uh, the, the issues of our day in the, in, in the sense that we allow that to become our focus. You didn't just call us to a political movement. You didn't call us to uh, writing social injustices. You called us to share the gospel of Jesus that has the power to change hearts and change lives and transform us from the inside out. Lord, we believe that that gospel is the remedy that our world needs. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision for centering our lives on the gospel, making our every day about building your kingdom. And in the meantime, Lord, when we look and we see the brokenness of our world, we say, even so, God, come. We are ready, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a seat if you would. So we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We are looking at the letter that is written to the church at Pergamum. We are studying through the seven letters to seven churches this summer. Each Sunday we're taking a different letter and as we dissect these letters we find that there is essentially a, a rhythm to how these letters are written. There is a familiar pattern about these letters, much the same as we find patterns with letters that we write today, right? There's a, traditionally a greeting, you, you're addressing something, be it your audience or maybe a particular issue, and you, you discuss that at length, you kind of summarize your points, you wrap it up, and, and you give some kind of a closing state, right? We're familiar, we compose letters, we compose emails in a similar way, but particularly in these letters, we find that to these churches, there is a, some form of a commendation, some form of, of praise for the things they're doing right, but there's also a condemnation. There's, there's a challenge to them. There is, a, if you would, a rebuke for the things that they are doing wrong, for the ways that they have slid into sin. We find also there is a command, instructions for them to follow, and a call, which is more than just the instructions, there's a vision for how they are to take all of this and put it into practice and, and ultimately a promise of how their lives will be blessed if they are faithful to follow this call that they have in Christ. And so this morning we want to look at those different elements of this letter that is written to the church in Pergamum. Okay, so while you turn there, Revelation 2, let me just start out by addressing something else and then we'll jump into this. Doug made mention earlier of the fact that next Sunday, we will be bringing Brad Duncan and his family, his wife Jamie, and their four children in view of call to be our next minister to students here at First Baptist Church. And we are really excited about this over a process of 
many months now and interviewing candidates, taking resumes. Our personnel committee has met several times with the Duncans and feel led that this is the man that God is leading here to lead our student ministry, become a part of our pastoral staff here at the church. Not only Brad, but his wife, Jamie, and their children come uh, as well. And so it's really important that you be here next week. We want to have a good showing so that you will get to hear his heart, hear his vision for student ministry, and also so that you can participate with the, the vote to call him to join our staff. If you've grown up in Southern Baptist churches or been a part of Southern Baptist churches, you know that many times when you arrive at this step in the process, it almost feels like just a formality. And in a sense, I understand that because so many people have taken part, so many people in our leadership have taken part in getting to interview and know the Duncans along the way that we've had a lot of lives speaking into this saying, yes, we, we agree, we affirm that we sense God's direction in this. So we, we come before you as a church saying we are confident of God's leadership in this direction. But the other side of things is it's not a slam dunk. It's not intended to be just a slam dunk or just going through a set of motions and we bring someone to you and just parade them in front of It's not just a, you know, a, a, a show in that sense. This is genuinely about us as a people praying and seeking the Lord's leadership and giving voice as a body to affirm God's direction for us as a church. And so we want you to come and participate and be a part of that. I know that July 5th is not the ideal weekend to do that, right? Uh, the, the weekend of the 4th, we understand that is not the ideal time. You have plans for the 4th, no doubt. Uh, we have plans. We've reworked our plans to be here on the 5th, and if you can possibly do that, we would ask that you would do that next week because we want you to come and meet the Duncans and participate in that day. Literally, when if, if I were to walk you through his schedule, Brad's schedule this summer, uh, quite literally, this is the earliest we could have gotten him here and the only time we could get him here until we get into mid-August because of things that he's involved in and responsibilities that he has with his current church and also with some missions activity that, that he's helping to lead for our state, for youth ministry on a state level with a trip to uh, Seattle in the coming weeks and those things. And so we just said, all right, well, we circled this date on the calendar. It's just not ideal, but Lord knows that that this is the best, and, and he knew that before we ever figured it out, so we're gonna press forward with that and make July 5th work. So here's what we will do next Sunday morning. In Sunday school, for all of our students at 9.15 Sunday morning, for our students and our youth leadership, we will have a time with donuts and juice, and just a time in our fellowship hall where you guys can get to know the Duncans and come and hear them share some about their vision for student ministry. Then, in our morning worship service, Brad will share with us in the worship service. Rather than preaching through the next letter in our series, through the, the letter to the church at Thyatira, I will give that time to Brad next Sunday morning so that he can share his testimony, his call to ministry, and also just give you his heart for how student ministry fits as a bigger part of the vision for the church and raising up committed followers of Christ. And then after that, we will enter into a special called time of business where we will consider the vote to call the Duncans to come and serve on our staff following the service and the vote that morning, then we will have a time of fellowship, a reception in our, in our fellowship hall, uh, a luncheon where you can hopefully get to meet the Duncans if you've not done that yet, and then, uh, and then that will be it. Then they have to be on their way because he leaves out the early the next morning for the trip that he's leading through what's called I Go Global, which is a mission partnership around the state of Oklahoma in youth ministry through, through our, our Southern Baptist Convention. And 
Brad will be leading a trip to Seattle the next morning, so they have to take off. So next Sunday evening, I will preach through the message for the letter to the church at Thyatira, okay, so that we stay in our series and, and keep all of our, uh, our, our, our ducks in a row as far as that goes. So we want to encourage you, be here next Sunday morning for that. Come back Sunday night and hear the message about the, the church in Thyatira as well. One other thing I want to say about this, okay, because it's really a small world and social media connects us in such a way that, the, that a big world becomes even smaller. Understand that the Duncans have only at this point relayed this information to a small group of people. Their, their children, their family know, his pastor knows, but for the most part, his students don't know a, about this. And so please don't take to uh, social media, Facebook, uh, you know, Instagram, what, whatever, uh, Twitter, whatever, you know, however you're connected with, hey, Brad Duncan's coming to our church next week just yet, okay? Let's let a week pass, and then after we call them, you can be excited and take to social media, because this week, the Duncans will be with their students at Falls Creek, and it is his plan to share that news with them while they're at Falls Creek this week, okay? So have some sensitivity, please, if you would, with that, especially those of you who are connected through uh, Super Summer even, especially because of that network that exists between students and leaders through Super Summer, because if you go to social media about this, undoubtedly someone will hear it first through your Facebook post and not from them, and, and we want to honor their ability to share this news with their church and with his students. They've served on staff at Prairie View Baptist Church in Elk City for 10 years now, and, and we want to honor just the relationships they've built, and, and we want that to be their news to share and not something they read first on Twitter, right? So if you would, please uh, hold off on a week with your excitement, and then you can celebrate it uh, on social media, all right? We want to jump in this morning with the letter to the church at Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, we read, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now this picture of Jesus being the one who has the sharp two-edged sword comes from verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, and each of these letters has some part of its address that is taken from the vision that was given to John in Revelation chapter 1, and so we find the connection here with Jesus being the one who is the righteous judge. That's what this picture of the sharp two-edged sword is from Revelation 1, 16. And he writes in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so we find in this letter written to the church at Pergamum that 
there's this, this pattern we've been studying all along. So first we see the commendation, the, the praise, if you will, and then we'll see the condemnation. Then we'll find the command for them to follow, the instruction, and then the call that comes with the promise for those who would follow that call. But first, let's understand a little bit about the city of Pergamum itself so that you can understand some of the background because there are several things in this letter that, that if we understand the, the context, the background of this church, it will help us to make sense of this as we work our way through it. First of all, you see in his address that he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The city of Pergamum was located about 100 miles north of the city of Ephesus. You remember that when we started studying these seven letters to these seven churches, that there is a, a postal route, there is a Literally, a, a way that messengers would carry news coming from Rome, that they would arrive at the port in the city of Ephesus, and from there they would travel to the north to the city of Smyrna, and on from Smyrna to the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia, of the region, the Roman region of what was called Asia in modern-day Turkey. In fact, the city of Pergamum itself is the modern-day Turkish city of Bergama. It's located about 15 miles inland along the coast, the, the Turkish coast of the Aegean Sea. Pergamum was the capital city, and so because it was the capital, it was one of the most important cities in Asia as well. In fact, much of the city was built on this large hill that towered more than 1,000 feet above the plain from the south where you would, where you would approach the city. And, and I actually have a, a picture that we can show that, that will show you this, this high Acropolis. Now, an Acropolis in Greek and in Roman architecture, an Acropolis was a, a, a large temple or a large structure. Normally, it sat on top of the highest point of a city. Clearly, you can see this is the highest point around. And so, you're standing to the south, and you are looking along this, what is left of the ruins of this large street, this large paved street that led the way toward this hill. And they're located some 1,300 feet or so above the plain from which you approach was this, this Acropolis, this city fortress built up on top of the hill. And so you can see that on the approach. It's difficult to make out from just the size and the scale of this picture as well, but you can notice Along the very bottom portion of this hill, a road that cuts across it. This road wound around the hill and wound its way all the way to the top. And at the top of the city was the temple to the Greek goddess uh, Asclepius. And, and so uh, As, Asclepius, rather, was, the, was known as the god of healing. And he was symbolized commonly by the, the symbol of a serpent, of a, of a snake. And so... Even it was said of some that this road that wound its way to the top of this hill mimicked like the, a, a snake coiled around the hill. And there at the top of the hill where this fortress was located lie the ruins of the, the, the largest part of the ancient city of Pergamum. A massive city, uh, a very important city as well. Pergamum housed the second largest library in the ancient world with more than 200,000 handwritten volumes in this library. In fact, the legend of the library at Pergamum was that in the third century, a Pergamene king decided that he wanted to, to take 
the Alexandrian Library. The Alexandria, Egypt was known, world-renowned, for its library. And so its library was the largest in the ancient world. And so this Pergamon king decided that he wanted the Alexandrian Library. So he tried to convince the Egyptian rulers to loan the library to the Pergamines so that they could display it, so that they could show it off. But the Egyptians got word that the Pergamines meant to keep the library if they could get their hands on it. And so the Egyptians, first of all, didn't send their library to Pergamon, but they also ruled that the papyrus, which was the writing material, the the paper-like material made out of dried reeds that they would write on in, in ancient times, that they would cut off the supply of papyrus to Pergamum so that the Pergamines could not develop their own library. So in response to that, the Pergamines developed a form of writing on a material called parchment, which is just dried animal skins. Now, in actuality, we know that parchment had existed for for many years, over a thousand years prior to this, there have been discoveries of, of the use of parchment. But the Pergamines developed the widespread use of parchment as a writing material. And so today, we even have many, many of our New Testament uh, artifacts that, that have survived over the years, have survived on this parchment, these dried animal skins that the Pergamines developed for widespread use. And so their library, much of it was written on, handwritten on these, these parchment skins. And so that's kind of the, some of the lore of the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was also the center of worship for four of the main gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon with temples to Athena, Asclepios, Dionysus, and Zeus. And so four of the, of the main gods, and I've already told you that one of the most important of those was the temple to Asclepios, who was the god of healing. And so the way that the, way that the, the worship of Asclepios would work, on the highest point of that hill, you can see a structure to the left-hand side of the picture, and those are the ruins to the temple to Asclepios. And so in this temple, there were these large this, these large columns, and there were snakes that roamed freely throughout the temple. And so people would travel from around the ancient world to climb the hill to the temple where Asclepius was worshipped, and they would lie down to sleep on the stone floor of this temple and hoped that one of these snakes would would come by and touch them or coil up next to them so that they could touch it. And the legend was that if you were touched by one of these snakes that roamed freely in the temple, then you would be healed of whatever your, whatever your infirmity was. And so you can see the connection, especially with the early Christians, to the worship of Asclepius, the serpent, and the idea of Satan. Now, we don't know for sure that was what John had intended. There are many scholars who would argue that it might have been the... the temple to Zeus that also sat on this hill, actually on the far right, on, on the, uh, literally the very far right, right over the columns that you see is where the temple to Zeus sat. Uh, it could have been the many temples to the Roman emperors that were scattered throughout the city as well. In fact, there were temples to Roman emperors Trajan, Augustus, and Septimus Severus, who were all a part of the imperial cult worship of the Romans. For whatever reason that, whether it was the temple to Asclepius or one of the temples to the Roman emperors, regardless of the fact, it was clear 
that there was a stronghold that the enemy had on the city of Pergamum as a centerpiece of, of pagan worship, of idol worship. And so it's to this church that exists in this hostile climate where Christians were openly oppressed and antagonized for their worship of Christ and not their strict adherence to this imperial cult that Jesus speaks these words of truth. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. So the first thing that we see as we follow this this pattern we've been looking at is the commendation, right? The church at Pergamum was praised for holding fast to their faith in Christ in the midst of opposition. He writes to them these words of Jesus. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, church, church tradition holds that Antipas was killed by being burned alive inside of a large brass bull statue. There was a, a large idol to a brass bull, and then they placed Antipas inside and heated that until he literally was roasted alive like someone being cooked in an oven inside of this brass bull during the time of the emperor Domitian. And so Antipas was martyred for his faith, and what Jesus says is you held fast to your faith even when some among you lost their lives. Even even when you were oppressed and persecuted, you held fast to your faith. So the commendation to the church is for holding fast to their faith. But we see this word of condemnation. That the problem facing the church was that they drifted away from their faith over time through compromise and indifference toward God's moral standards, which is why he writes to them, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. If you were to read in Numbers chapter 22 through 25 in the Old Testament, you would find the story of Balaam. And and I won't go there and and read all of it to you because you you can scan backward this week. You can look backward and read that story for yourself. But let me summarize for you kind of the story of what happened with Balaam and why that's important to what's taking place here with the Pergamene. Balaam was a sorcerer in Old Testament Israel. And there was a king who was, who was uh, jealous and afraid of all of the Israelites who traveled through his kingdom. Balak was a king, and, and he didn't like the number of Israelites who were multiplying and traveling freely through his kingdom. And so he sought from Balaam a way that he could that he could try to solve this problem of all the Israelites who he thought were in danger of overtaking his kingdom and overrunning his lands. And so Balaam came up with the idea that he should entice the men of Israel with with prostitutes, essentially. That he should entice the men of Israel with pagan women who, as a part of their pagan practices, would commit these acts of prostitution with men and Balaam gave essentially this, this word of advice to Balak that if you can lead them astray with these foreign women, with these Moabite women, then they will no longer honor and worship their God. Their hearts will turn toward the gods of the Moabites. And so that's exactly what Balak did. And even in 
Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we find as much that this was all a part of the plan that Balaam had given to the king. And so essentially Balaam, because of, because of this, becomes sort of this, this example that the scripture uses for leading God's people astray. Throughout the Bible at different points, Balaam is used as an example of someone who will be judged severely by God because they intentionally lead God's people astray. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Jude chapter 11 are just a few places in the New Testament that also speak of Balaam and, and use him as an example of someone who commits this great sin against God and God's people. And so essentially what's happening is that we find that there are some in the church who have been led astray by these, by these practices of idol worship, of, of pagan idol worship. And Although it doesn't say specifically what all is involved, we know that it's following in the example set by Balaam and his leading the children of Israel straight. And we know that it involves food sacrificed to idols, eating food sacrificed to idols, which was essentially a matter of compromise for the Christian, that they would compromise their Christian faith by partaking of these foods sacrificed to idols, and then after these foods were sacrificed to an idol, they were sold freely in the marketplace, and often at a discount price, so that they were cheaper than the rest of the, of the food, to entice people to purchase them, of course, because that was a part of the, the practice of, of these, these pagan priests. And so we know that they, they partook in the food sacrificed to idols, and also it says that they practiced sexual immorality. Now, oftentimes in ancient culture, sexually immoral acts were tied to these pagan worship practices. And so temple prostitutes were common, and, and there were a lot of practices, and I won't go into great detail because of the young ears in the room, but you, you can imagine just some of the, the, the wickedness that would have been involved in this idol worship in, in these immoral acts. And so the idea is that there were some in the church who over time began to let down their guard. They began to compromise. They began to, they began to backslide against the, the standards that God had set for them, God's moral standard. And of course, what happened to them was the very same thing that happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament, that their hearts turned from worship of God and turned toward these false idols, these false hopes of promise and fulfillment. That's exactly what's happened here. And so Jesus is saying this word of condemnation against those who have, who have given themselves to these, these idolatrous practices, saying to them that if you don't repent, then my judgment is coming on you. But not only did they follow the example of Balaam, but there were some who held also to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we saw in Ephesus in the letter that was addressed to the Ephesians, that the Ephesians stood firmly against the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've seen in 1 John, as we studied through 1 John, the influence of the Nicolaitans in the, in the life of the early church, that the Nicolaitans were those who had twisted the, the teaching of the deacon Nicholas. So in Acts, where the deacons are, are called and set apart, the first group of deacon men, one of those deacons was a man named Nicholas, and whether Nicholas himself 
strayed into heresy over time or whether others took the teaching, the instruction of Nicholas, and twisted it somehow. We don't know for sure, but we know that out of that grew this, this group that were known as the Nicolaitans. And so they were teaching these false teachings, and the Pergamines were falling into the trap of this false teaching that sounded good, that sounded enticing, but was in itself heresy. It was, it was, it was a lie that they were believing. And so Jesus speaks this word to them. Come back from your compromise. Come back to the standards that I have given you. Come back from trusting in false teaching and lies or else you will experience my judgment, he says. This isn't just an issue of, uh, isn't just an issue of uh, some simple uh, idol practices, right? This is ultimately, this is an issue of obedience to Christ and faithful Christian witness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, urges Christians not to be unequally yoked. James chapter 4, verse 4, instructs Christians that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, tells believers that they should abstain from worldly passions, right? Throughout the New Testament, we find this teaching that as Christians, we should live differently from the world around us. We should live lives that are set apart for the cause of Christ. And there were some in the church in Pergamine who had, who had simply relaxed their guard. They had given in to these lies. And over time, they had succumbed to this worldly pressure. And so we find the command is that Jesus called the church at Pergamum to repent of the sin in order to avoid his righteous judgment. He tells them that if they don't repent, that he will come with his sword Verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now the two-edged sword that, that it refers to here in verse 12, this sword coming from the mouth of Jesus is the word of judgment. And in Roman, in Roman culture, the two-edged sword was an invention of the Romans. Romans invented the, the two-edged sword and it was an effective weapon. In fact, one of their most effective weapons that allowed them to have great success in battle because the two-edged sword could cut both directions and so it would never swing a dull edge. And so regardless of which way the Roman soldier was swinging this sword, it, it would cut both ways. And so the other swords that other armies would use are similar to what you imagine, right? A one-edged sword, a longer blade. In fact, the Roman sword had a shorter, stouter blade and the combination of the Roman century, which was their, their army and their military formation, and the Roman weaponry of this two-edged sword gave the Romans great success in battle. And throughout the New Testament, the picture of a two-edged sword is a picture of God's righteous judgment. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it has the ability to penetrate joint and marrow, right? That it's this picture of God's judgment, the word spoken to divide the truth from lies, and that's exactly what is going to happen here in this situation with the church at Pergamum. Jesus is going to bring his righteous judgment and war against those who would not repent of their sin. And so the command is for them to repent, to turn away from their sin, to abandon these idolatrous practices and return to their, their devotion to their Savior, Jesus. And the call that we see for them is this, is those who triumph through faith, 
will be spiritually sustained in their relationship with Christ. Now, the idea of triumphing through their faith is, is the idea of overcoming, right? He, he writes here that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. The idea of conquering, the idea of overcoming is for those who would stand against the the forces of the enemy, right? Again, this is a church who dwelled where Satan's throne was. This is a church that, that stood in the face of opposition. This is a church that was, that was radically oppressed to the point that some of them were martyred and their very lives taken from them for their faith. Jesus says to them, for the one who overcomes, for the one who is victorious, who triumphs through faith, that you will be sustained in their relationship with him. The, the, the picture of hidden manna is a picture of being sustained. And, and so one, one idea that interpreters have about this idea of hidden manna is that Jesus, uh, rather Jesus, God in the Old Testament, God had commanded the Israelites that they should take some manna and that they should place some manna in the Ark of the Covenant. And so they gathered up manna, they placed it in a special vessel, and that, that stayed in the Ark of the Covenant. And when, when Israel was overrun, the prophet Jeremiah took this, this vessel with the manna and he hid it in the mountain. And there, the idea was that someday when the Messiah returned, that he would bring with him this hidden manna that the prophet Jeremiah had hidden away and that it would be a picture that he was the true Messiah, a picture that he was the one ultimately who had come to mediate between God and his people, the, the victorious one, the conqueror over evil. And, so, and the idea is that when we, when we overcome, when we triumph through faith, that we will be sustained, we will have all of our needs met through Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 even tells us that God has given us every spiritual blessing through Jesus. That's what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. That in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. So Jesus holds for us everything that we need. We need not bow down to these pagan gods. We need not worship these false idols and believe these, these, these false teachings thinking that somehow we will be fulfilled through that. Rather, if we would stand firm to our faith, then we will be sustained by the one who saves us. We will be sustained by the one who is the, the object of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews writes. And so those who triumph through faith will be sustained through their relationship with Christ. He holds everything that we need. So we've seen the, the commendation, the praise, the condemnation, the rebuke, We've seen the command, the clear instruction and the call, the promise and the vision for how they were to live this out. So let's, let's take these truths then spoken to the, the church at Pergamum and let's apply these things to our life. This has been the way we have studied each of these letters. We'll look at what is written first to the church in context and then let's focus on how this truth continues to speak to us today. The first point is this, is that we need to guard our hearts so that we don't become indifferent toward our sin. We need to protect our hearts so that we don't 
become so comfortable with the idea of our sin, so become so comfortable with sin itself that we relax our standards, that we let down our guard and find our hearts begin to turn away from God and pursuing his righteous standard. It's exactly what happened to the church at Pergamum. It was the example, the type, if you will, established through Balaam and, and his uh, his leadership, if you want to call it leadership, and that he led the children of Israel astray. And the clear application for us is that we have to protect our hearts. We have to guard ourselves so that we don't become indifferent towards sin, so that we don't become comfortable with our sin, which ties in perfectly with the second point, is that we need to hold one another accountable to the standards set for us by the Word of God. The way that we do this, the way that we guard our hearts and guard ourselves against becoming indifferent toward our sin is that we have others in our life who will speak truth to us, others who will hold us accountable to the standards set forth by God's word for us. Clearly, God's word sets a standard for his church to follow. His word sets a standard for our lives as believers. We are instructed what is truth versus what is a lie, what is right versus what is wrong or as is often used throughout the New Testament, the imagery of darkness versus light. We know that we are to be a people of the light who dwell in the light, John writes in 1 John. We need to hold one another accountable to this standard. Can I just say that this is why it is so important that you be plugged into a small group where you can live life with other people. This is why we place such high value on biblical community, and we tell you all the time that you need to be plugged in to a Sunday school group here at the church. The Bible doesn't tell us, thou shalt attend Sunday school, right? I mean, it's not that black and white in Scripture, but the Bible does clearly tell us that we need one another and that we need to hold each other accountable. And here in the life of our church, the primary vehicle, if you will, that we have to accomplish that call that Jesus has given us to stand together as his body is through living lives together in community, and we connect that way through Sunday school. So every Sunday at 9.15, we have Sunday school groups that meet around our campus where people get together, and they study God's word, and they pray together, and they share about what's going on in their life. And, and sometimes that can be messy, because sometimes in those groups of people, right, people just really open up, and they, and they get real, and they get honest about what they're going through, and and we, we help walk through those things together as we stand shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes in those groups, we carry each other, and sometimes we're the ones getting carried, right? But we need that. We need to live in community and connection with each other. And I'll say this, okay? You don't have to be a part of a Sunday school group to be a follower of Jesus. You don't. The Bible doesn't say that you have to be in Sunday school, but the Bible does clearly tell you that if you want to stand, then you need not stand alone, that you need to live life in community with others, that you have been united with the body, the church, and that you have been given gifts that are intended to be used in the body, and in fact, you really won't arrive at the place of spiritual maturity until you are using those gifts that you've been given in the body itself. Read Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about that. And one of the best ways that you can do that is by connecting with a Sunday school group, a small group of people that you can live 
life with. And so we think it's essential, essential for your spiritual development that you connect with a group. And if you aren't connected with a group, I know this sounds like a commercial for Sunday school right now, and, and, and it is, unapologetically it is. If you aren't connected with a group, we want to help connect you with the group. When church is over today, we would love to visit with you, any member of our staff, and help you connect with one of our groups. So find me, find Doug, find Cody. And say, I need to find a group. I need to get connected to a group. We would love to get you connected to a group because we think it's for your good and your, your spiritual development that you would have a group like that that you can plug into. All right, third, this. We need to be careful whom we choose to listen to. We need to be careful who we choose to listen to. You know, in a day, in an age, when you can access blogs and tweets and podcasts from anyone saying anything, from any Bible teacher teaching anything that they choose with any kind of belief, this is why it is so important that you be careful who you listen to. It's why it's so important that you be connected with a church and you not just listen to podcasts and watch TV preachers and read blogs and think, well, that's how I'm gonna connect with the body of Christ. Can I tell you there is something absolutely essential about connecting with real people and you need a pastor. You need someone, the word of God says, who will help shepherd you, who will help lead you. My life is not lived in a vacuum. You understand, right? I mean, I'm a real person with a real life, with real struggles, real ups and real downs. I make real mistakes in my life. And because I live with you in community with you, you see those things. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. There are things that I do well and there are things that I fail at. And you get to see that. And each week when I stand to preach the word of God to you, you know that my life can be measured against my message. That you can judge my life not only by, the, by the, the volume of what I teach, but by how I live. And in a day and age when it's so easy to access teaching and writing and other things online, one of the things that happen is there's a disconnect between the messenger and the message. And it's easy to be led astray because of a message that sounds enticing when you know very little about the messenger themselves. And this is why it is essential that you stay plugged in and connected to the church. But not only that, right? Not only that, that we're called to not just to reflect culture around us, but we're called to shape culture around us as followers in Christ. And one of the ways that we do this is as we hold each other accountable, as we stand together for the truth, as we listen to the wisdom of God's word, and as we listen to the voices of people who love us, who are seeking to hold us accountable to what God's word says, and we would shape culture rather than being shaped by culture. And in light of what's happening in the world around us, decisions being handed down by our Supreme Court in the last few days and many other things happening in our world, now more than ever, you need people around you who will hold you accountable to the truth of what God's word says. And not only hold you accountable to the truth, but hold you accountable to your obedience to that truth. And understand that a part of that obedience means that we would stand for what is right. The government was never intended to be our ultimate authority, right? The Supreme Court does not decide what is right and what is wrong for us. They weigh on laws, and oftentimes it seems like they get it wrong more than they get it right. I mean, it's disappointing when a group of nine unelected officials can make a decision that will 
utterly affect the, the course of our culture. But understand this. Our authority is the written word of God and not the word of man. And we are called as God's people to stand for this truth regardless of what the world around us says. Regardless of how laws are written or interpreted, we are called to stand for this word. And church, we are called to stand for this word in love. And so it is essential that we know and do what the word of God says. We have a people around us who will hold us accountable so that when we start to slip, when, we, when our lives start to fall away, there would be someone in your life speaking truth to you so that together as a church, as the body, we would not just be shaped by culture, but we would shape culture. Oftentimes we say it with this with students when we're, when we're teaching our students, and this is really good for all of us, but we describe it as the difference between being a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermostat gets to regulate the temperature, right? A thermostat's job is to regulate how hot or cold a room is. A thermometer merely reflects how hot or cold the temperature of a room is. And so a thermometer will tell you what's happening. It will tell you what the temperature is. A thermostat will regulate the temperature around it. As God's people, we are called to be thermostats and not thermometers. We are called to influence and shape the world around us and not be shaped by it. And if we don't heed this word and stand for truth in a generation, we too will go, will go the way of the Pergamines. We too will sacrifice on God's moral standard. We too will give in to the pressures, the mounting pressures of culture around us. And just as there was once a vibrant, active church in Pergamum that over time died a death because they gave in to compromise, we too will die a death if we give in to compromise. And so it is essential that we stand for God's truth. It is essential that we be careful who we choose to listen to and that when people you know and love speak truth in your life, that you heed their words. And that we measure all of it against the counsel of God's word. Can I say this? If you read God's word and you listen to biblical teaching and you find that you're, you always agree, that your life always agree, agrees with what you see that the Bible says, then you're probably not doing it right. Because the word of God is intended to instruct us like iron sharpens iron. The people that God has given us to hold us accountable sometimes will say things that step on your toes, things that you don't like and that you don't want to hear, but for the sake of your righteousness and your sanctification, things you need to hear. And if you find that, that the word of God always agrees with you, it's probably that you're not really listening to the word of God, that you're just using it as kind of a, a, a jumping off point and doing whatever you want to do. You need to weigh and measure your life against the counsel of truth and against the one who is speaking that truth. And finally this, we need to strive to live a life of faithful obedience rather than comfort and ease. One of the great sins of our generation is that we have elevated the pursuit of comfort and ease over our faithfulness to Christ. And so there are many in the church today who would take the easy way rather than the righteous way. Many who would take the path of least resistance when the word of God tells us that the path we're to walk will be narrow and that there will be few who are on it. We need to make it our aim to strive for a life of faithful obedience rather than one of comfort and ease. So can I ask this question? 
When was the last time that following Jesus made you uncomfortable? When was the last time that standing for Christ cost you something? In a world where there is a mounting opposition against our faith, where there seems to be more and more an increasing pushback against the the teaching of Scripture and, and against Christians in general, it is essential that we that we nail this down in our hearts, that we will stand no matter what, and that we will do it in the way that the word of God calls us to. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to give an account and to do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, you don't have to use God's word, even though it's sharper than any two-edged sword, you don't have to use this as your bully club, right? You just let the word speak the truth that it speaks, and you make sure that your life reflects the truth found in God's word. And God will do the work of convicting through the Holy Spirit. God will do the work of drawing people to repentance. You and I are called to stand for what is right and hold each other accountable to that as well. If if the church at Pergamum had listened to that word of advice and truly heeded that, then then I, I believe that they would still be going strong today. But over time, through compromise and relaxing their standard, they, they faded away. And God's word of judgment to them, and his, I think his word of judgment that continues to speak to us today is that we would repent of our sins of indifference, and that we would turn our hearts back toward him. So this morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And I want to ask you to get uncomfortable in our time of response today. I want to ask you that you would be willing to be honest with yourself about the ways in which you have relaxed God's righteous standard, the ways in which you have, that you have uh, given in to what's easy rather than what's right. And I want to ask that as God leads you this morning that you would be willing to repent. And so when we stand to sing in just a moment, Our altar will be open. You could come and kneel here in prayer. Maybe a prayer of confession. Maybe a prayer where you you freely admit to God the ways that you have wandered away and that you repent of that and, and, and come back and turn back to him. Maybe you need to repent of who you're listening to because you recognize through God's conviction on your heart that you've been listening to the wrong voices saying the wrong things. Maybe it's that you need to have accountability built in your life. Maybe it's that you recognize you've become indifferent toward your sin and you want God to break your heart of that sin of indifference. However God is speaking to you this morning, would you be willing to repent and to turn to him? So when we stand to sing in just a moment, our altars will be open. Doug and I will be here at the front ready to receive you. If you recognize today that there's never been a moment where you've really surrendered your heart and soul to Christ and so how could you follow him because you've never become a true follower in the first place than today would you make this be the day of your surrender this be the moment where you surrender your life to him we'll be ready to receive you we'd love to pray a prayer of faith so that you might have this faith that can overcome the attack of the enemy so in whatever way God is leading you we invite you to come in a moment as we stand to sing would you bow your head and close your eyes with me now as we prepare for that time. God, I pray that you would speak your word of truth to our hearts, that you would come.